Acts chapter 25 is where we're going to be today. So if you want to take out your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 25, we are today actually going to be uh, hitting the pedal down a little bit, and we're going to cover two chapters. And the reason for that is because these uh, chapters really go together. The, the story is contiguous. And so we're going to dig into chapter 25, and we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 26, Lord willing, and I'm still going to try to get you out in time to get fried chicken and beat the Baptists. So that's our goal, to be able to do that. Now, uh, little reminders you're making your way to chapter 25. Uh, the story or the common theme we see in these last several chapters in the life of the Apostle Paul from chapter 21 through 28 is a theme of bondage. Now, I say a theme of bondage, but I've entitled uh, the message today, The Stark Contrast. Uh, the reality we're going to see is there are some that appear to be in bondage that are actually free, and that are, there are others that appear to be free that are actually in bondage. And so keep that in mind as we go through the scripture today. Now, chapter 21, we saw Paul being taken into a captivity. He's thrown into uh, the barracks there in Jerusalem after a riot occurs when he is on the Temple Mount. In chapter 23, we see after Paul has testified to several different groups, both of the Romans and the Sanhedrin, he gets transferred to Caesarea Maritima at the end of chapter 23. And last week in chapter 24, we were in Caesarea Maritima where he testified before Felix, the governor of this entire region of Judea. He was the, the proconsul, the man in charge that make the decision. And yet, what we saw is Felix could not make a decision. He, he struggled to decide whenever push came to shove. And in the words of one of the uh, greatest worship bands of the 80s, if they just would have loved Jesus, uh, Rush, uh, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. And so as Felix chooses not to decide, he still very much has made a choice. And it's a similar choice that Pilate had, and that was, what do I do with Jesus? And so he delayed and he put it off, and he put his decision off until he no longer had the opportunity to make a decision. And so for Felix, he has now been removed from office, and a new uh, person has come in, a guy named Festus, and he now is the governor over this area of Judea. And that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 25. Now, when Festus, verse 1, had come to the province, after three days he went up to Caesarea, or from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. And so what we see is uh, Festus is new into the office. He decides he's going to make a journey from Caesarea where his home base is at, and he's going to go up to Jerusalem. Now, a little note for you, Bible, as you begin to study through scriptures, any time a travel to Jerusalem is mentioned, you always go up. You never go down to Jerusalem, regardless of geography. And the reason for that is the Holy Spirit is weaving in this idea that we are always going up to Jerusalem. And what does the name Jerusalem mean but the peace of God, God's peace? And so as we go on our journey, we're always traveling up towards the peace of God. Maybe some of you have got the peace of God figured out. I'm still on the journey. And so this is the case when we see Jerusalem mentioned in the Bible. So Festus has taken a charge. He's now uh, there in Caesarea, and he wants to go check out the largest city in Israel, and he goes to Jerusalem. And here, as he's met by the high priest, 
a new guy, actually, Ananias, has passed away at this point, and the chief men, some two years after they had the trial for the Apostle Paul, they are still upset. They are still after the Apostle Paul. And I bring that up to say, this is what a root of bitterness looks like in our life. That if we do not walk through forgiveness, if we're not willing to deal with the things that, that we get so easily tripped up by, and even when we're legitimately harmed by this, unlike these guys, when we don't deal with that bitterness, it grows and it increases. And there's, there's a lie from the pit of hell that says time cures all. The reality is time does not cure it. <laughs> what cures it is walking through forgiveness. And so for these guys, they still have this, this hatred, this bitterness for uh, Paul. Now, verse 4, but Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And so the Holy Spirit here actually intervenes on Paul's behalf uh, through an ungodly man. Festus doesn't believe in God whatsoever, and yet what would happen if he transferred Paul to Jerusalem is they were going to kill him along the way. And so it's interesting how the Holy Spirit puts people in our lives that the will of God can still be accomplished even through ungodly men. Now verse 6, And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. And so these guys have essentially two years to gather additional evidence on Paul, and yet they gather none. There are no legitimate charges against the Apostle Paul, even after this has taken place. Now, verse 8. While he answered for himself, now Paul is going to speak up, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? And so Festus has a, a question. He wants to, a change in venue for the Apostle Paul. Are you willing now to go back to Jerusalem and actually face them in a trial? Now, verse 10. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I have an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. And so what Paul knew is that this was a death trap. If he gets shipped back to Jerusalem, they are laying in wait for him. And so he says, look, as a Roman citizen, I have the right and the ability to appeal to Caesar if I don't feel like I'm getting a fair trial. And that's what happens. And this is one of only a few times we see Paul use his Roman citizenship to get himself out of trouble. And the reality for Paul is he wasn't afraid of taking a beating. He actually mentions it here. He wasn't afraid, but only if the dying would actually magnify Christ. He wasn't just going to willingly lay his life down for these people who hated him so very much. He still had work to do. So he wasn't afraid of being martyred, but wanted Christ to get the maximum amount of glory. Now, verse 12, Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, you have appealed to Caesar? 
to Caesar you shall go. And so Festus meets with his buddies, and he says, look, if you've appealed to Caesar, we're going to ship you off. And, and isn't it interesting here again for the second time is Festus, who doesn't believe in God, and yet the will of God is actually being done by this ungodly man. What did Jesus say in Acts chapter 23 when he met Paul at night? Verse 11, he says, Paul, as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness of me at Rome. You are going to go bear witness at Rome, and that's precisely what Festus commanded to happen. Now, verse 13, as we continue, and after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to meet Festus. And see now, as several days have transpired, he very much like Felix is putting the delay on. He didn't want to send the Apostle Paul to Caesar. And we're going to get into those reasons here in just a minute. But that he uh, didn't want to most likely is because he had no legitimate charges to bring up in front of Caesar. And now we're introduced to uh, a couple new characters. Uh, King Agrippa, this particular Agrippa is Herod Agrippa II. And he is actually the last of the Herodian dynasty that we'll see in the Bible in historically. Now Herod Agrippa II was the son of Agrippa I and the great-grandson of Herod the Great. And so the guy that built Caesarea Maritima, rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, also, oh, by the way, had all the babies killed in Bethlehem because he didn't want the Messiah to come up and take his throne, uh, not a particularly great-great-great-grandpa. So if you've struggled with some of your family members, uh, you probably didn't have a Herod uh, somewhere in the lineage. Now, as uh, we see Herod Agrippa II come about, he shows up with someone else. He comes with uh, Bernice, is what she is known as. Now, Agrippa II is also a brother to a lady we saw last week named Drusilla. And so both uh, Drusilla and Agrippa II are brother and sister. And we've now been introduced to Bernice, who is in a relationship with Agrippa II. They're not married, but they are in a relationship together. Now, this is interesting because Bernice is actually a half Drusilla into Agrippa II, which means, this is a little PG-13, Agrippa and Bernice are in an incestual relationship together. Now, history, church history tells us that uh, Bernice is a stunner. I mean, she is some kind of a beautiful woman. And so for Agrippa, he's fallen in love with her, and they're living this life that they know is not right. Even in this culture, this idea is completely unacceptable. It's why uh, they were not married. Now, for many of you, uh, you're from Coles County, and this kind of thing, this doesn't resonate uh, with you. But i got to tell you, if you're from Clark County, this is the kind of thing you have to be careful of. These are the kind of things we got to walk a very fine line. In fact, when I uh, first asked my beautiful wife to go out on a date with me, she was 14 at the time, and I was 16, and I was excited because here's a blonde-haired California girl in Clark County. That looks like fresh DNA to me. So I'm like, I'm excited about this. And so I asked her to go on a date, but you can't go many places when you're 14 and 16. And so I invite her to a family birthday party. And so she arrives at the family birthday party. And while we're there, uh, she asks a a very good question. She said, hey, what are uh, Camille and Rusty and Brighton and Brennan Reagan doing here? And I said, well, they're my cousins. And I see drain out of her face. 
And she said, wait a minute. They're my cousins. Like, uh-oh. Now, wait a minute. Now we've got a problem here. And so for her, she's panicked because she thinks now she's dating her cousin. And I'm panicked because I finally got a blonde-haired girl to talk to me. I didn't care that she was my cousin. I'm like, look, we can get past the details, babe. This isn't that big a deal. I mean, minor, minor. Uh, but, but she was in a full-out panic. And uh, thankfully, we were able to work thanks to grandmothers and proper genealogies. We found out that through marriage, we were both related to opposite sides of that family. And so all was well, but it did take her a good week to talk to me just to make sure that we weren't, in fact, cousins. I say all that to say that these are, these are taboos, right? These are things that we know we have to avoid in our relationships. And so for Bernice and Agrippa, there's a lot of controversy that surrounds their relationship. Man, I hope Angela doesn't listen later. Okay, verse 14. And when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction, but meets the accusers face to face or to get a fair trial, and has the opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Verse 17, therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed. But, verse 19, had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. And so Festus has a problem on his hands. He cannot understand these charges. He doesn't understand the Jewish faith. He doesn't understand uh, Christianity, and he certainly doesn't want to send Paul to Caesar without some legitimate charges. You, you wouldn't want to go to your boss with an issue without it being well-defined. And so this is the case that Festus has got against him. He's asking Agrippa to step in and help him. Now, verse 22, And then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, Festus replied, shall hear him. And so Agrippa has a particular fascination and interest in hearing the Apostle Paul. For the Herods, they have this sordid relationship with the Jews. They, they have this back and forth where it's, they, they're interested, they want to study Judaism, and yet, like his great-grandfather, they're busy putting them to death. Or like his father, Agrippa I, is ordering the beheading of James, the first apostle to be martyred. And so they have this back and forth, and yet they have this fascination with the Hebrew Scriptures and with Judaism. And so Agrippa wants to speak to the Apostle Paul. So verse 23, the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And so they gathered together in the 
amphitheater. I didn't point it out on the early slides, but down at the bottom right, and I brought it up last week, that is a picture from the amphitheater that still exists to this day, at least portions of it, in Caesarea Maritima. And so a, a huge auditorium that seated upwards of 5,000 people, and Paul was going to appear on trial there. This is like reality TV, ancient Israel style. And so everybody shows up to watch the reality TV show, and uh, Paul is brought out, but first you have Bernice and Agrippa, and they've got the robes on, and man, the nines. It's a red carpet kind of an affair for these guys. Now, verse 24, And Festus said, King Agrippa and all men who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was no longer, uh, he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. And so Festus is again admitting there's no uh, substantial charges against the Apostle Paul. And so he is going to have to send him to, as he mentions here, uh, Augustus. And now some of your history buffs and you enjoy this kind of thing, I want to point out uh, that Augustus, after the original Caesar Augustus, had become a title of sorts. And so it had been passed down sort of like Herod's title to mean the august one or the strong one. And so it was passed down through multiple Caesars, but this particular Caesar's name was Caesar uh, Nero. And so he's sending him to uh, Caesar Nero in verse 26. And I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to specify the charges against him. Now, Caesar Nero is known historically as a guy you do not want to mess with. You don't want to waste his time, and you certainly don't want to come up against him. In fact, he is not mentally all that stable. Uh, Festus in here refers to him as my Lord. In the Greek, it actually insinuates a deity. And Nero was such a crazy person, he thought that he was a god. Now, among other things, uh, Nero perfected the uh, art, if you want to call it that, of uh, beating people to a point that he would actually take Christians when he felt like anyone was opposing him, and he thought Christians were a few years after this. He would actually take Christians and strip them uh, naked, dip them in hot wax, alive, and then impale them uh, and place them along the roadside and light them on fire just so he could light up his garden at night. This is the same Caesar Nero. This is what it meant to be a Roman candle. And now you get the idea of just uh, what it was to actually go against Caesar or to be uh, the subject of Caesar's attention. And so now you understand the, the interest Festus has in making sure he has a very good claim to send to his Lord before Paul gets there. Now, chapter 26, we continue. And then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. And so Paul strained and answered for himself, I, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things which I am accused by the Jews. In verse 3, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Now, in these first few verses, you could ask yourself a question, is Paul buttering up King Agrippa? 
And I would submit to you based on his track record of not buttering up anybody, Paul telling the truth, how he sees it, is that he was not flattering Agrippa, but in fact Agrippa did have a great knowledge of Scripture and tradition and culture. Remember, his family had been studying them for generations, and so he had a tremendous amount of knowledge, but what Agrippa lacked was wisdom. You see, uh, oftentimes we can be very knowledgeable, especially when we are in a place that has a university right to my back, right? Knowledge is, is greatly valued, but if it is not put to any kind of application, it is just knowledge for the sake of having knowledge. That wisdom is knowledge applied. And so for Herod, he's got all the background. He has all the information. And you, you've probably sat with people. Maybe you've even been one who has been in that spot where you have had knowledge and yet you have not applied it in your life. And so here he appeals to Agrippa's sensibilities and his knowledge. Now verse 4. My manner of life... From my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. In verse 5, they knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now what Paul's going to do is similar to what he did in chapter 22. He's going to begin to give Herod his own personal testimony. Right? He just reflected upon how Herod's got all the biblical knowledge he needs. He didn't need more theologies. He didn't need more doctrine. But what he had not heard was Paul's personal testimony. And we covered that a a few weeks ago. What Paul did was he walked through who he was before Christ, how he came to Christ, and now who he is uh, in Christ. And you're going to see a similar pattern as Paul shares his testimony. But he begins by who he was before Christ. And he says, I was a Pharisee, and what I did as a Pharisee, they called themselves the fence of the law. They thought it was their responsibility to actually defend the law of God, to literally defend God themselves. And I would caution you, anytime we begin to defend God, please remember who actually needs defendership. It's not him. So many times, anger and frustration and vile things come out of us because we think, we've convinced ourselves, I'm going to protect God. When reality is, I'm the one that needs protected. And so here for uh, Paul, as he was a Pharisee, he'd gotten it all backwards. And what did it lead to? It led to death and destruction and hatred and anger because God never needed to defend it. So Tarsus did. Now, in verse 6, as he continues, he says, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. I am now standing here because I have a hope, and the hope is in a promise made by God to our forefathers. And if you want to look at where that hope all starts, it actually starts in a moment where everything is completely hopeless, right after the fall of mankind. Adam and Eve, and this thing looks really jacked up. (laughs) Like there's there's no way mankind is going to be able to possibly make their way through this. And what we see is this promise of God in Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of their Hebrew scriptures, and what God is prophesying now to Adam and Eve and to Lucifer. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between yours and her, your Bible should have a capital S, seed. 
He, capital H, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his, capital H, heel. The promise of a Savior. The promise of the seed of hope that we actually needed. It existed at the beginning of their scriptures, and it continued. The thread of the Messiah, the thread of Jesus Christ, existed all the way through. All the way through until we see the, the birth of Christ. Now, chapter, excuse me, verse 7. And to this promise, our 12 tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? This is his question to Agrippa. Looking through your Old Testament text, we know you've studied it, you've got tremendous knowledge. Why is it, as you look at that text, so hard to believe that God cannot raise from the dead? Why is that so difficult to believe? And yet then I challenge myself and my situation. Why do I so often forget what Hebrews 13.8 says is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, I forget that he, that he can do these things. Or if I don't forget that he can, here's the other side of it. I oftentimes question, but will he? <laughs> I believe that he can, but will he intervene in this spot? Will he step in? And really, as I'm asking that question, God, will you step in? Will you change the course of this? What I'm really saying, or what I'm really questioning is, do I trust him? Do I trust that he knows what's best for me, in the healing or in the not healing, in the restoration or in the leaving something not restored, in the, in the job that I was banking on or in the job that does not come about. Do I trust that he has my best interest in mind regardless in every single situation? And I think so often that's where I fail. That's where I fumble. I don't trust that God has my best interest in mind, that he doesn't know as well as I do how this situation should go. And yet time and time again, what have you found in your life that he knew far better, exceedingly and abundantly more than you could ask or think? That's what he's looking to do in your life. And when you look at the promises of God, here's one of the things you can stake your claim on to know that it's true. That Romans chapter 8, verse 32 this is what Paul says in one of the most famous chapters in the entire New Testament. He says in verse 32 of Romans, he says, He, speaking of God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I question God if he has my best interest in mind, and yet what has he already done for me? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave everything for us already. So why then do I question him? What Paul's saying is, why would he, if he's going to put his absolute best foot forward when we weren't doing diddly squat for him, why should we now question him? Why would he not freely give you exactly what you need? Even in the test, even in the trial, even in the challenge, he's shaping us every single step of the way. And so the real question for us is actually one of faith. <laughs> Do I believe it? Do I believe? Now, verse 9 as we continue. And indeed, 
I myself thought that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests when they were put to death. I cast my vote against them. There he's referring specifically to Stephen, the first martyr we see in the New Cast his vote. He should be put to death, this man. Paul's saying, if you think you're zealous, man, you got nothing on me. I chased down the church. I hunted them down. In verse 11, And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And while thus occupied, I also journeyed to Damascus with authority and the commission from the chief priests. These very same chief priests gave me authority. (laughs) These guys that want me dead now, uh, they gave me authority. And what he was looking to do was discredit the early church. He was having them blaspheme. Understand that the enemy always wants to discredit the messenger because when he does, he discredits the message. That oftentimes, when you see shame brought about on the messenger, the enemy loves that because it discredits the message. That's what Paul was up to, forcing them to blaspheme. Now verse 13 And at midday, O king, along the road, headed to Damascus now, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And so Paul shared miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus. And what the Lord says is, Saul... Isn't it hard to kick against the goads? And what a goad was, was a a farmer, as he was plowing his field, he would have a team of oxen out in front of him, and this was a sharp stick or a spear that he would hold directly behind the oxen's hindquarters. And when the oxen got off track a little bit, give him a little jab. When he tried to kick back, he's kicking back into this sharp stick. And what God's saying is, look, Paul, I wasn't forcing you to do anything but you got a real sore buttocks right now, don't you? I mean, you have jabbed yourself enough times. You're, isn't it, doesn't it hurt a little bit? Isn't it hard to sit down? You've been poked and prodded so many times. This is what the Lord is saying. Now, in verse 15, And so I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. And I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. And so Paul gets his uh, command to go out and be an apostle to the Gentiles. What the Lord says is, "I've, I've done this so that you can be a witness to the entire world. And so Paul is now called into ministry. 18 is he continues, and to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who were sanctified by faith in me. Paul's calling was for him to go be a witness to the world that was around him. But the calling was there so that he could actually bring others to Jesus. This is the same thing that Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We studied it months and months ago. What does Jesus say? He says, I'm going to give you power so that you can go and be a witness 
to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You're not getting a power, any kind of power just for your own good. You're getting power to go and be specifically a witness for me. This is the same thing Paul gets. I'm giving you this calling so that you can go and be a witness and to testify. The same calling is true in each of our lives. Maybe you haven't been called into ministry by him knocking you off of a horse and blinding you for three days. And yet this is the same call. It's, it's what is your sphere of influence? What, what position has he put you in, the people he's put you around, so that you can lead people from death to life? That's all the more complicated the message actually needs. It appears you're struggling because you're dying. Let me share with you about life. Let me speak to you about what it looks like to have life. And by the way, if you've ever wondered why it is we come to church, why do we come to church? Oftentimes it gets thrown out. We come to church so people can get saved. That's wonderful. I'd love for people to get saved in church. That's fantastic. But that's not the reason we're here. We're here, I'm here, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's you. <laughs> That's me. It's to give you weapons, to give you abilities, to give you thoughts and things to challenge yourself to actually go out and do ministry. You've got connections and people you're, you're tied in with that I can never get in to speak to. These are folks that, that you can actually be a part of their lives. But we have so often overcomplicated this simple message, especially in church, that, that we now don't even understand what our vision is. It's the same vision as the Apostle Paul had to lead people from darkness to light, from Satan to Jesus. That's all the harder it has to be. Now, continuing before my blood pressure gets up. Verse 20, but declared... Those, I declare to those in, in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting repentance. So what's Paul's message when he speaks to people? I don't know how to talk to people. Here's Paul's message. This is what I mean about the simplicity. It's one of repentance. And what is repentance? It's a changing of our mind that allows Jesus to then come in and change our hearts. He could have forced each of us into this, and yet he loves us so much, he gives us a decision. He allows us to take place in the story. Now, interestingly enough, Scripture tells us he gives us the faith that we need to be able to accept him and to be able to change our mind, but then he comes in and begins to, to change our hearts. And so this is the simple message that Paul shares, the same message for us to share, to repent and to turn to God. In verse 21, for these reasons, the Jews seized me in Jerusalem and tried to kill me. This is how popular Paul's message was. I gave them a message of repentance. They tried to kill me. But you see, the thing is, that's actually consistent with Scripture too. When you look throughout the Old Testament and then transitioning into the New, and you look at the life of Noah or Amos or Jeremiah or Daniel, or John the Baptist, you see over again, these men had a similar message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You need a change of mind and allow him to change your heart. Repentance was the message. It wasn't a, a feel-good, lovey-lovey message. Is the reality. 
And, and oftentimes, this is the message uh, that people hear uh, in congregations on Sundays, that it's the power of positive thinking. If you name it, you can claim it, right? These are all the messages that get told to people. That it's just love, love, love. And, and while Christ loves us, he loves us like a dad, enough to discipline us and redirect us and get us pointed in the right direction. And these men all shared a similar message of repentance. And by the way, a repentance message is one that changes lives. A repentance message turns things around. And when you look at it back in the New Testament, at Luke chapter 18, this is Jesus sharing about what it looks like for those that want the, the lovey, lovey, feel-good message. I want to sit in a pew, and I just want to feel good about me. Thank you, Pastor, for making me feel good about me as I go out on my day. Uh, what Jesus is sharing is oftentimes for, it's like the, like the Pharisee who, who puts their eyes up to heaven, and they give their tithe, and they pray to the Lord, and yet inside they are completely void and dead because they are they're the same things they've always been bogged down with. If you want to know what those things are, read the top ten list. God made them pretty clear. <laughs> and so what Jesus says in verse 13 of Luke 18, he says, but the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what repentance looks like. Repentance doesn't look like buying our own junk and our own hype. It looks like pounding our chest and saying, Lord, I need you to fix my situation. I need you to come in and interact right here, right now, because I don't know how to turn this thing around. You've got to do it. And if you're willing, if you are willing, like the tax collector that Jesus talked about, to say, Lord, turn this around, then he is faithful and just to do it. That's the promise of Christ. He is willing to come into our heart. All he is looking for is just a little bit of repentance, a turning back to God. Now Paul continues in verse 22, and he says, Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, saying, look, the, the message I've shared is the same message they've got in their hands or in their scrolls, as it were. It, the message hasn't changed from Moses to the prophets. I've continued in that. And by the grace of God, I'm still standing here because they've tried to kill me plenty of times. Now, verse 23, he says that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. This is the message that has existed throughout the scriptures. Now verse 24. Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said to him in a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Paul, you crazy. That's what he says. That's my version anyway. Paul, you've lost your mind. Are you insane? Like, this story, no God would ever come down in a human flesh and actually give his life for us. That's insane. And yet, is it? Because it sounds like it's, it's the only way. It's the only way to fix our problem. And so all Festus can see is that Paul's a crazy man. And by the way, as you share with people, 
to those that are perishing and do not get it, I'll just give you the warning ahead of time. You're crazy. You're going to sound like a crazy person to them. And yet, what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same things over and over and over again and expecting a different result. <laughs> they're really the ones that are living a crazy life. They're, they're in the same sin cycle and yet expecting somehow it's going to turn out differently this time. And so what God actually does, and this is the part that is hard for Festus to understand, but the only way you can reason through why God would do what he did and continues to do, it's as simple as what we learned in Bible school. It's that he loves us. Why else? He wants a relationship with us, a one-on-one -on -one personal relationship. Why else would he put everything on the line if not for that? And so when you can come to grips with that, it all of a sudden becomes way more reasonable. And I think our own insecurity is the thing that keeps us from really believing that so many times. Now, verse 25, but he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also freely speak knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. Hey, I didn't do this thing hiding. I put it out there, and so did the Lord. 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. you got to love Paul. Always closing. Paul was a tremendous salesman, and this is what he's doing for Agrippa. He, he turns his attention because he sees Festus is not receiving the message, and with truth and with reason, very calmly, he turns to him and he says, do you believe? This is a question that every person has to answer. At some point, we have to answer, do you believe? And so he presses now into Agrippa, who responds in verse 28. And then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. So close in that spot. And, and no doubt, as he looked at his life and the mess he actually had going on, he had to say, this sounds too good to be true. <laughs> I'm nearly persuaded. It sounds so good. This thing sounds so promising. And yet, almost. Paul responds in verse 29 and says, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today, remember Paul's in this huge theater, might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. I, I would wish for every person here hearing my voice to be as I am. Not an almost persuaded, but a fully persuaded. Now verse 30 and when he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice, and those who sat around them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving death or chains. But then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so they come together, they confer that there is no charge that really is substantial or stands against the Apostle Paul. In fact, uh, they make the comment that if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we would have let him go, which, by the way, is a big fat lie. They'd only had years to let him go. hadn't done the right thing. They didn't have the guts to do the right thing, you see. And this is what happens when we, when we don't have a clear conscience. 
We don't have a boldness. These men's consciences were seared. They were disturbed, and so they could not be bold to stand for their faith. So oftentimes, this is the case when it comes to our boldness. And we go, I don't know that I can have a boldness. I would question you, what is going on in your conscience? What is going on in your psyche? Perhaps it's just insecurity and self-doubt. But here's the reality. Jesus died for all that. He's already made you completely free. And so in our story today, what we really have is, is a contrast, a very stark one between two different characters. We've got the, the contrast on the one end of Agrippa and Bernice. On the outside, beautiful. I mean, they had it going on. They were decked out to the nines, and yet inside, they were living the hellish prison of sin. This is what sin does every time. It, it convinces us that it's going to feel good. And the reality about sin is, it does. <laughs> it, we wouldn't do it if it didn't feel good. At least in the short term it does. In the short term it fixes that hole. It, it solves that problem. It, it pacifies us until the next time. The problem is it, the cycle has to continue. And the feeling has to continue. And the fix has to continue until at some point in time we wind up in prison. Outside, everybody thinks we got it going on. Inside, it is hell on earth. And if you've ever suffered from an addiction, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But the same thing goes with pride and insecurity and angerness and bitterness and all these things that we so easily grasp a hold of. We get stuck in these things and we won't give it over to Jesus. And so it ends up feeling like prison. And we have the Apostle Paul who history tells us was not an attractive man. A small man, uh, hunched over, bald spot. Don't make fun of people with bald spots. Bald spot on his head, hooked nose. This dude was ugly. He was what we heard about in high school. He was U-G-L-Y. You ain't got no alibi. He ugly, right? Paul was ugly. But he was also imprisoned. Practically, he was in chains. So to anyone looking on the outside, they look at Paul and go, how on earth is this man free? You know, what Paul knew that he was trying to convey to them is he had complete and total freedom surrendering to Jesus Christ. He was the most free guy in that whole amphitheater. It looked like he was in chains, but look at what was getting ready to happen. They were going to send him to Rome, which was God's will. And oh, by the way, Paul had asked God to send him to Rome. So it was both Paul's will and God's will for him to go to Rome. He was the most free guy there, and because of his clean conscience, he was able to speak with boldness to these people. They had nothing on him. And so this is the question as we wrap up today. Is your life a life of contrast? Is your life one that people can look at and see there is something so different about you? that you're contrasted against the rest of the world. Called to be in it, we are not called to be of it. The best example I ever heard was, we're like a ship out in the ocean. When the ship is in the ocean, it's doing just fine. When the ocean is in the ship, uh, that usually means you're going down. So this is us. We are in the world. We are floating on top of this thing. And yet, is my life defined as one that has contrast? Is it obvious that there is something different about me. I would challenge you this week to answer that question. And I would also challenge you in this. Are you one who is almost persuaded 
or are you fully persuaded? I think for years and years of my life, I sat in a seat almost persuaded. And I can tell you that seat right there is a seat that leads many to bust the gates of hell wide open. Having no idea that they're even in that spot or having an idea that things aren't right and yet not having the boldness to say, I want to be fully persuaded. I want to know that I know that I know I want to be persuaded. What the Apostle Paul says as we close in Romans chapter 8, go back there one more time. Paul says, for I am persuaded. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the promise for the fully persuaded. That there is literally nothing this world or any spirit can throw at you. Paul lumps it all in there. It don't matter if it's Satan and his minions or if it's your boss, who sometimes might seem like he's Satan and his minions. Either way, there is no power that can overcome the power of Christ and that can separate you from the love of God. Being fully persuaded. And so, Father, we thank you and we, and we praise you for the life of Paul, a life that is fully persuaded. Lord, would you please help us to be a people that is fully persuaded? It's scary to go into situations where we're not sure we have the authority to speak or the courage to speak or the boldness to speak. Would you please, as David said, create in me a clean, clean heart, O oh God. Create in us a clean heart so that when we share, we know that we are sharing on behalf of the one, capital O, that loves the people we're sharing with. To see them go from darkness to light, child of Satan to child of God. There's nothing more glorious or miraculous than, than to see someone accept Jesus, to accept you. Lord, give us boldness. Help us to understand that's the reason we're here. That if we were only here to accept you and believe in you, then it would be best for you to take us home, to be with you right now. And... and Lord, there are lots of times we would like that very much. But the fact that we're here is because our work is not done. The work you would have done in us is not complete. There are those who need us to witness of you and for you to minister to those around us. Thank you for the people you put us into contact with. Lord, there are some, and we're thinking of them right now, they are hard to deal with. Sometimes they're in our family. Sometimes they're our friends. Sometimes they're our coworkers. And man, we do not want to have that conversation. And yet, Lord, you've put them in our care. Give us the ability to speak. Help us to live a life that is on fire and fully persuaded with the knowledge of how much you love us. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. been walking the same old road for miles and miles 
You've been hearing the same old voice tell the same old lies. If you're trying to fill the same old holes inside, there's a better life. There's a better life. If you got pain, he's a pain taker. If you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom or saving, he's a prison shaking savior. If you got chains, he's a chain breaker. We've all searched for the light day in the dead of night. We've all found ourselves worn out from the same old fight. We've all run to things we know that just ain't right. There's a better life. There's a better life. You got pain, pain taker. You feel lost. He's a way maker. Saving, he's a prison shaking savior. If you got chains, he's a chain breaker. If you believe it, if you receive it, if you can feel it, somebody testify. If you believe it, if you receive it. If you can feel it, somebody testify. You got pain, he's a pain taker. And if you feel lost, he's a way maker. You need freedom, you're saving. He's a prison shaking savior. You got chains, he's a chain breaker. church says amen amen thank you guys i know we went a little long this week so thank you for the grace that's involved in that i'll be praying for you guys continuing uh, as you pray about what it looks like to be and be challenged i want to encourage you uh, to find accountability <laughs> find accountability with people you can connect with people you can trust uh, in your life uh, for all of us we all need a uh, paul and we need a timothy we need someone that we're investing in, and we need someone to invest uh, in us. We need accountability. We need people to push us. So uh, I'm thankful for those people in my life. I pray that you guys would have those uh, in your own. So God bless you guys as you go about your week. If you need prayer, I'll be hanging around.